Thank you, brother. The gift and music that you share with us is, always prepares our hearts just right for the preaching of the word. Amen? I'm going to be reading from Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, only two verses this morning. It says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of God. You can be seated. As you're being seated, I'd like to pray again before I preach from God's word. Please bow with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. What a gift we have, Lord, in it. We know men of old shed their blood so that we can have it, Lord, in our own language now. So thank you very much for men like William Tyndale and Martin Luther and so many that suffered to get the truth to the people when it was oppressed and hidden. Thank you. Father, I pray that you would please move in our midst, Lord, and apply your eternal truths to our hearts. And Lord, give us grace, motivation that we need to walk in obedience to it. Lord, overcome our unbelief, overcome our doubt, and help us, Lord, to walk in the truth. I pray also, Lord, that you would help us in here this morning. I know we come from many different circumstances, Lord. Maybe even some this morning were just less than good or happy circumstances. I pray now that you would please help us to focus on you and you alone. Help us to be here now this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This prayer that I'm reading, that I'm going through, we call the Lord's Prayer. really should be called the Disciples' Prayer because in Luke, we hear a little bit more of the conversation that went behind this. They say to the Lord Jesus one day, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he gives them this prayer. So we've called it the Lord's Prayer. It really should be called the Disciples' Prayer, right? Because he says, pray then like this. Through this model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, last week we learned that Jesus begins by focusing on God's name being seen as holy. Remember that one? We, prayed that, we titled that one last week, Prayers About God, and we saw that prayer is ultimately about God, and focusing on who He is makes praying really a lot more enjoyable, as we saw. It makes it a lot more simple, more like it's supposed to be. Today, we'll find that prayer is about this holy God as king and His reign as king, the area of the reach of a king's authority and a king's realm, we call that his kingdom. Today our prayer focus turns to the reach of God's kingdom, which is why I've titled this sermon this morning, Prayer is About a Kingdom. Last week, prayer is about God. This week, prayer is about a kingdom. Jesus has essentially three lines that he mentions in this part of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to look at each one of those. Let's start then with your kingdom come. And boy, it's good to see Pam and Butch back in the front row again. So good to see you guys. I'm so glad you are well and back with us. It was just a void. Your kingdom come. Jesus prays. Your kingdom come. Pray this. He says, pray like this. Your kingdom come. Meaning, Lord, I desire your kingdom to come. May your kingdom be 
here. But wait a second. David writes in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And the apostle Paul, who was the first one in the Bible to render the title king of kings to the Lord, said this in 1 Timothy 6, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So if his kingdom rules over all, according to what David said in the Psalms, and he's the king of kings, and his dominion is an eternal dominion, as Paul said, why is Jesus instructing me to pray that God's kingdom will come? It sounds like it's already well established everywhere throughout all creation forever. Well, in last week's sermon, I reminded you that mankind, we are rebels. The fall into sin by Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed the Lord's one command he gave them in the garden, they, and they partook, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that thrust mankind into the curse of sin that not only affects the creation, but it also affects us, it affects mankind. We are born into sin with a sin nature, a natural bent towards doing wrong. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 12 says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's referring to Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I know those last three words in that sentence are really important, because all sinned. I told you last week that every word of God is precious. Every one of them is very important. Sometimes even if a word is past tense instead of present tense, it makes a huge difference, and we can hang our hat on it. This one is especially important. This is a good example of that. Notice he says, death spread to all men because all sinned. He doesn't say, death spread to all men because all sin, meaning when you sin for the first time, that's when the curse of sin comes upon you. That's when you receive the sin nature. No. He says, death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve, being the representative heads of the human race there in the garden, when they sinned, it affected all of us. It affected all their offspring for all time. Now, you might say, let me just take a rabbit trail for a second. You might say, well, wait a second. I don't like that, Cohen. I don't like that someone's choices thousands of years ago can have an effect on me today. I don't like that. Well, I'll say this. You do like it. Because if I'm not mistaken, you like the fact that Jesus' death thousands of years ago has an effect on you today, don't you? So we can't have one without the other. Our representative heads, Adam and Eve, they did thrust us into sin because we all sinned in them. And we're born with that natural bent towards sin. We're born rebels. So back to my question that I still haven't answered. Why is Jesus telling us to pray that God's kingdom will come when Scripture seems to make it very clear that he's already ruling and reigning with all authority over all creation? 
Well, even though God is the King of kings, even though he's the Lord of lords, there are rebels walking around in his realm. They pose no threat to him. He's not worried, as some kings of old were, that these rebels might unite and overthrow them. Remember, Pharaoh, during the time of Moses, ordered that all the male babies born be destroyed. Remember, Herod, during the time of Jesus, sent out an order that all the male children, two years old and under, be killed. Well, the Bible makes clear that even if all the kings of the earth took their stand against God, (laughs) it would only cause him to laugh Listen to Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. No, God's not scared by men who hate him and rebel against him. They pose no threat to his Rule. Rather, the concern for our Lord and teaching us to pray this way is based on God's benevolence, his loving kindness towards rebels. God desires that sinners be saved, saved from what's damning them. And what is it that's damning rebels? It's their sin. And God desires to save them from their sin. Your kingdom come. Jesus tells us to pray this way. Yes, your kingdom come. But it's not because God's lacking some area, some geographical area that he's not Lord of yet. No, instead it's because he's a benevolent and patient king who desires that his rebellious creation come into his kingdom. His is the best kingdom, the purest kingdom, the brightest, most powerful kingdom because it's an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. Where's the once mighty kingdom of Persia that was ruled by the great Artaxerxes? Where is it? Gone. Where's the mighty kingdom of Babylon ruled by Nebuchadnezzar the Great? Where is it? No more. What about Egypt? Is it still the power house it once was on the earth? Nope. What about the kingdom of Rome? Are the Romans still a world power that we should fear who might invade us and take over our land? They're also gone. And there will be a day when even America will no longer be the world leader it is today. In my opinion, we already see its power and greatness fading. So, our ultimate focus is not to be focused on an earthly kingdom. It's not to be focused on an earthly kingdom, not even the kingdom of our own nation. Christians are citizens of this nation, yes, but citizens of another realm. God desires that all men be saved and come into that kingdom. Listen to Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
We are, as Christians, citizens of that heaven, that place, already. We are here now, and we want there to be more citizens here now. Just as we sang in that last song, it had references to bring your kingdom here, let your power reign within us, and let hearts be set on fire. It was all salvation language. You probably caught that. It wasn't so much like build buildings and such. No, it was set up your rule and reign in the hearts of men. As fellow workers of Christ, we now pray for God's kingdom to come because by faith in the finished work of Christ, we've gotten into this kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I chose my words very carefully in that last sentence. I chose my words very carefully. When I said we've come into the kingdom by faith in the finished work of Christ, that's how we get into the kingdom. That's how we become children of God. There's a popular phrase out there, we're all God's children. You've heard it. I've heard it. It's false. Now, if by that phrase, if they mean God created all of us, okay, fine. That's true. But biblically, what it means to be a child of God is it means you're saved. You are a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, we're all God's children. Is not true. We're not born God's children. In fact, Jesus once looked at a group of religious Jews, these would have had large portions of the Old Testament memorized. You know what he said to them when he looked in their faces? He said, you are children of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and has never been on the side of truth. He looked at a group of religious Jews and said, you're the devil's children. Remember the first time I heard that, I thought, is that really in the Bible? Went in there and looked because it was like in a movie. Went and looked, and I thought, there it is, right there in the book of John. And I've read it before. (laughs) Just goes to show why we need to constantly be reading the scriptures. There's always more. There's things that you didn't notice. So, we're actually born children of the wicked one. And we become children of God when we get saved. And that's what we want for others as well. We want them to be Saved, and we get saved by faith in the finished work of Christ. We get into the kingdom through faith in the finished work of Christ. Jesus made this clear also when he was talking to a religious Jew once, Nicodemus, up on a roof at night. John 3, 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it clear, we're born into the kingdom when we're born again, born of the Spirit. That's how we get saved. That's how we get in the kingdom. This happens when we turn from our sin and believe what the Bible says about Jesus, the truth about Jesus, that he perfectly kept the law on our behalf, which is so important because we're lawbreakers. That he took upon himself the wrath of God and shed his blood and died, which is also so important. Why? Because we deserve the wrath of God for those crimes against God. And so therefore, you see, he was bearing the punishment that was supposed to be ours. He rose again from the dead. This is also so very important. Showing, number one, that the price for sin had been paid, but showing, number two, that he defeated the curse of death 
that was brought upon us by our first parents, Adam and Eve. Just as we read in Romans 5, death spread to all men because all sinned. Jesus' resurrection and our united our being united to him by faith means we also conquer death. Jesus reversed the curse. Death given upon all men, Jesus defeats death. That's why he's called the second Adam and the better Adam, because he undid what the first Adam did. So in Christ, we're brought back into the kingdom we forfeited when Adam sinned. Isn't this good news? This is great news. Jesus did all this for us. Jesus did all this for us. I'll say it a third time. Jesus did all this for us. He did it. So if you're trying to work for your salvation in some way, the only work that you do is put faith in Christ. He did all the work. Do not try to earn God's favor or God's salvation. That is a total affront to Jesus because he did the work. And it's ignoring God's plan for salvation. In Christ, we're brought back into the kingdom we forfeited when Adam sinned. And it's that fellowship we were created to have with him in the beginning. It's mended when we become kingdom citizens and come under the lordship of the king. So when we pray, your kingdom come, what we're asking for is for the reach of God's kingdom that it would reach into the hearts of rebellious men who've broken his laws, who will now come to him by faith and be reconciled to him. That's what we're praying. Your kingdom come, we mean, in the hearts of men, that they be saved. Now, don't misunderstand me when I refer to the heart. I'm not talking about the emotions only. Salvation is not a feeling. It's a reality that shows itself by a changed life. Salvation is a reality that shows itself by a changed life. It shows itself as one walks in obedience. Obedience to God's will because he's Lord. That's why Jesus continues by giving us more about what this kingdom looks like in its everyday operation. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying that we want what's true about God's kingdom in heaven to be true about God's kingdom here on earth. And what's true about God's kingdom is that people walk in obedience to God's will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's how we show that we're kingdom citizens, is that we walk in obedience to the word of God. God, his will is fully obeyed in heaven. Listen to what uh, Warren Wearsby, I'm sorry, not Warren Wearsby, listen to what Henry Blackaby wrote. And by the way, I got this from this devotional. If you're looking for a good, timeless, solid devotional to begin, if you're thinking, yeah, I'd like to start a devotion to Glenn, this Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby, I love it. It's actually got written in the front that uh, Amy received this, July 15th, 2001. That's how long we've had it. That's how long it's been around and uh, it's showing signs of wear because it's been well-loved. Great devotional. This is what he says about our text in there. In heaven, God's will is the only priority. A word from God brings angels to do his bidding immediately and without question. Jesus instructed us to pray that God would accomplish his will in our world in the same way. 
This means that God's purposes would be preeminent in our homes, our businesses, our schools, our churches, and our governments. When you personalize this prayer in all those areas, it will help you pray. It will help you also see that this is a simple way to pray. And we should prioritize this portion of the Lord's Prayer in these areas. God's will being done. Is God's will done in your home? Is God's will being done in your house? If not, pray that God will help you. Pray that it would be. And ask for his help that it can be done more consistently. God wants this for you. God wants you to walk in obedience to his will because that's how you're brought into fellowship with God. And it's where you find fullness of joy and what you were made for. Is God's will done in your work? I'm not necessarily talking about, is your boss obeying God's will? Are your coworkers walking in God's will? We want that, yes, because it makes for a much more pleasant work environment, doesn't it? I'm mainly referring to you. Is God's will being done in your work? For example, the Bible tells us, do your work as unto the Lord, as if doing it for God and not for man. That's what it says. That's what the Bible says. Are you doing that? Pray that you would do it and that you would do it better and more consistently. Pray. Ask God to help you obey his will at work. Students, is God's will done in your life at school? What about in your schoolwork? The Bible says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That even includes your schoolwork. If he's going to get down to the small things like eating and drinking, he says, whatever you do. It's God's will done in our church. Don't forget, a church is made up of individuals, right? So as we're all walking in obedience to God's word, it'll affect the whole, won't it? But also, the negative, the, the flip side's true. If we're walking, if we're individually walking in disobedience to God's word, if we're not doing his will, won't it also affect the whole? It will. It will. Remember the sin of Achan when the people of Israel went in to take the land. The very first place they came was Jericho. You know the old song, Joshua won the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Well, they did. And the people of Israel were supposed to go in and conquer and not take anything. Achan disobeyed. And because of him, Israel lost the next battle. And many people died, actually. Joshua goes to God and says, Why? Why? What happened? What happened? And says, Hey, why are you coming to me? Go ask your people what happened. Turns out, Achan disobeyed God. And because of that, it brought a curse upon the whole tribe until the sin was rooted out. They couldn't move forward. Our individual sins sometimes will affect the whole. Oftentimes they do, especially in a family setting. And that's just the truth. Is God's will done in our government? <laughs> I think we all know the answer to that one. Let's pray that it would be. We were talking this morning at the breakfast table, and I reminded Amy and the children, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. 
because it all trickles down. We were talking about abortion this morning, too, at the breakfast table. You're probably thinking, you guys talk about a lot of serious topics around breakfast. Sometimes we do. (laughs) And I told my family, I said, I'm surprised God hasn't judged this nation more severely because of all the babies being murdered. And then we said, well, God is judging us. Look at our leaders. Let's pray that our leaders would walk in obedience to the word of God. It's not too late for them. If they're still drawing breath, they can be saved. Let's pray for them. Is God's will done among your unsaved friends? Well, obviously not. They're unsaved, so we pray for them. Listen to how Martin Luther, in this letter, in this um, book that he wrote to his barber, and I've told you guys it's called A Simple Way to Pray, from where we get the title to this sermon series. Martin Luther prayed this for the conversion of the unsaved. Dear Lord, God and Father, convert them and defend us. Convert those who are still to become children and members of thy kingdom, so that they with us and we with them may serve thee in thy kingdom, in true faith and in unfeigning love, and that from thy kingdom which has begun, we may enter into thy eternal kingdom. Thy kingdom which has begun, he's saying, your kingdom has already begun here on earth. It's already started reaching and gaining ground, but I want these unsaved souls to come into that kingdom and so that we with them may one day enter into thy eternal kingdom kingdom. It's important that God's will be done or else there's no evidence of a true conversion as well. And that's just the plain truth of scripture. Don't believe me? Listen to this. I want to make this point. Obedience is the evidence of true conversion. Obedience is the evidence of true conversion. What does that mean? True conversion has already happened. Obedience is the evidence of it. Don't misunderstand me. I don't know why I get Sometimes I get misunderstood. This is very clear. Listen to this. You don't try super hard to be obedient so God will save you. No. (laughs) He's not looking for you to get good and then get saved. He didn't come for good people. He said, "I I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So why are you trying to get good to get saved? No, you get saved and you show that that's true with a changed life. Obedience is the evidence of true conversion. Listen to John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That if there is conditional. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. James 2, 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not a real faith. And then listen to this. This is probably one of the strongest ones. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. And by this we know that we have come to know him. How, John? Tell me. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. (laughs) Tell us how you really feel, John. (laughs) That's so clear. He who says, I know him, I'm a Christian, and walks in blatant disobedience to his commands is not a Christian. Now, I will say this again as well. You've heard me say it so many times, but one day, one day, you'll say this. I had a pastor once that used to always say this. You'll you'll, you'll be able to say that because you've heard me say it so many times. (laughs) I'm not talking about obedience in perfection, but in what? direction. 
No perfect people in this building. None. Especially not this guy preaching to you right now. Not at all. Don't want to hear an amen from the front row where my wife is, please. No perfect people in Christianity. However, though we're not sinless, we sin less. When you get saved, you start to hate sin and you start to love God. That grows more, the love for God grows more, and the hatred of sin grows more and more. When I sin now as a saved person, I feel dirty, and I feel separated from my God, and I don't like it. In the past, however, 17-year-old Cohen, selfish, self-centered, egotistical, prideful, disobedient, disrespectful, that guy loves sin, didn't care. So what I don't mean is, when it says here, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. When John writes that, he doesn't mean keeps his commands in perfection. He means keeps them in direction. The direction of your life has changed. And you hate it when you get off trajectory. So you correct that. Father, forgive me. Help me not do that anymore. And you get back on. Yes, that's normal Christianity. So you see, you see, that's how you know When the king has taken up residence in the heart, you'll see that the king has become Lord in that heart. The will of the king is loved. The will of the king is respected and seen to be for what it really is. And that God's will is good, upright, and righteous altogether. We gladly submit and walk in God's will because we finally see it for what it really is. Good, upright, and righteous altogether. We don't want to buck against it anymore. We want to embrace it. That's what makes one kingdom different from another, even here on the earth, is the will of the king upon that land. The will of the king upon the land affects the nature of that realm. Think of the different kingdoms we have here in existence, still here on the earth. You can walk into that land and tell if those ruling over them are ruling with principles that have the overall good of the people in mind or principles that show that these leaders are just living off the backs of these people and at the expense of these people. Think about, for example, think about those in charge in the once communist Russia Uh, Communist China, North Korea. Has it affected those kingdoms? Have the rulers of those lands and their will imposed upon the people affected the people in North Korea? Has it affected those people? Yes. In horrible ways. You can tell that the will of the king is not meant for the good of those people. You can see the pain and suffering in their faces. Their faces are skinny and gaunt. They're starving. And then you look in the faces of those who've been saved by faith in Christ and are placed in God's kingdom. They love their Lord. They trust him. They're so thankful that his will for them is a good will. And they're so thankful that he's a kind, benevolent king who embraced them even in their rebellion. You can look in their faces and see joy and fulfillment. Even though sometimes we walk through hard things, it is still well with our soul, just like we sang this morning. 
We pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done because we want to see a picture of heaven here on earth. I'm almost done. As we eagerly await our Savior, who will return to make heaven and earth one one day, until then, we pray for these little glimpses that we get to see of heaven. They're imperfect glimpses, but they're glimpses. Even now, God's people gather together, loving one another, bearing each other's burdens, sad when some aren't in our midst, and then happy when they come back. That kind of joy that we're united with in the truth of God's word, these are small glimpses of heaven, caring for each other, praying for each other. So we pray for God's kingdom to come in the souls of everyone that we know and love that's not saved yet, unsaved family members, friends, loved ones. Pray that they will know our benevolent king. That's what we want. That's what this prayer means. Your kingdom come, your will be done. How is that done? As another person gets saved, the kingdom grows a bit more. And then for those of you who know him, pray for yourselves that his will will be done in your home. Pray that it'll be done in your marriage. Pray that it'll be done in your parenting. Pray that God's will will be done in your work, school, and as you live in this current kingdom of America while we wait for the eternal kingdom that our Jesus Christ will bring. Pray God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we do pray that. I pray that you would save souls. I pray that you would even save souls through the preaching of this message. Lord, through what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. And Lord, I, I feel that sometimes. But I know that your word is powerful, Lord. It, I know that you honor the truth preached and that it does not return to you void. So Father, I pray that you would honor that promise and please, Lord, take these truths into our hearts. Give us grace to walk in obedience to them. Lord, help us to be intentional about sharing truth with people, intentional about passing out Bibles or gospel tracts or even Christian CDs or whatever, Lord. Help us to be intentional about getting truth out to people so that your kingdom can come and your will will be done. Save souls, Lord, just as you once saved our soul. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.